There was once a, a great king whose love for his people knew no limits. And although the kingdom was very large, the king knew every person by name. In fact, he knew everything there was to know about every person in his kingdom. Everything the people of the kingdom had was a gift freely given by their loving king. Therefore, to show their appreciation to the king for all he had done for them, the people decided to have a great celebration to honor his birthday. Everyone agreed that it was a marvelous idea. Preparations for the celebration were very elaborate. No expense was spared by the people. They adorned their homes with lights and decorations and expensive ornaments. There were parties, dinners, and celebrations throughout the kingdom. All the people brought gifts for their family and friends. The gifts the people gave to each other were often quite expensive. Many of the people went into considerable amount of debt to buy these gifts. In fact, the people spent more on the birthday celebration than they spent all the other times of the year combined. The great day of the celebrating the king's birth finally arrived. And some of his people came bringing gifts and thanking him for his goodness to them. To his dismay, however, most of the citizens never came to his house at all on the day of celebration. Moreover, the gifts brought to the king by those few who came were often very meager when compared to the gifts they had given to themselves. If the truth were to be told, the people had been so busy with all the celebrations and personal plans, they had forgotten about their king altogether. Several said that they had thought of him, but really could not work it into their schedules or their budgets to come see him or to bring him a gift. <clears throat> a few were even put out when it was suggested to them that going to the king's house or remembering him with a gift was important. Those people who did come to his house and who brought their loving gifts were welcomed and blessed by their king. However, when they had gone and when he was alone again, the king thought of the vast numbers of his people who had forgotten and forsaken him. How could they have forgotten had he not loved them all? Had he not made a great sacrifice to provide for them? How could so many of his beloved people who had found the time and money for shopping and feasting and partying and decorating and all sorts of celebrations simply ignore him or forget about him? Wasn't the original purpose of this day to honor him in the day of his birth? One thought brought some hope and consolation. Even though they had forgotten him, he had not forgotten them. When I think of the way that many of us celebrate Christmas, I'm afraid this story hits closer to home than we'd like to admit. I know that for me, it hits closer to home than I would like to admit. We all know that Christmas is meant to be a celebration when Jesus came to earth to redeem man. However, if we were all to be brutally honest, how much of what we do at Christmas is really about Christ and how much of what we do is really about us as Christians, we, we tend to do some strange things at Christmas time. For instance, we're furious if someone says happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. Or if they talk about a holiday tree instead of a Christmas tree, we get angry because we say they're trying to take Christ out of Christmas. Yet if you were to look at the way that we celebrate Christmas against the way that the world celebrates Christmas, there really would not be that much of a difference. I mean, other than saying the word Christmas instead of holiday... Do our attitudes and actions at Christmas mirror that of the world? I think there are two attitudes that perfectly sum up the world at Christmas time. The first is reckless consumerism. During this season, we, we spend and we are encouraged to spend and spend and spend. It almost seems as if we are challenged to outdo ourselves in our spending each and every year. Some of us take the challenge very seriously. Every year at this time... Reckless consumerism leads people to spend their way into greater debt to financial disaster. We are culturally conditioned to spend beyond our means most of the time, but especially at this time of the year. The second attitude is Christless spiritualism. 
This time of the year, all kinds of feel-good movies come out that talk about the goodness of man, having peace on earth, goodwill towards men, and the miracles that often happen around Christmas. According to the movies and the TV shows, the nameless spirit of Christmas does all kinds of amazing things at this time of the year. As Christians, we should be very different than the rest of the world when it comes to these things. We know that reckless consumerism is covetousness and that covetousness is idolatry. We also know that Christ is the reason we speak of peace on earth and goodwill towards man this time of year. In fact, without Christ, there is no peace on earth. There is no goodwill towards men. Yet even though we know these things, it's easy for us to be caught up in the attitude of the world around us that we, like the people in our story, we forget about our king during this season we're meant to celebrate his birth. And it bothers me greatly. And it bothers me when I see it, the church at large. It bothers me even more when I see it in my own life. It bothers me far more to see it in my life than it does in anyone else's. One of my biggest fears is that I'll raise my daughters in such a way that they'll fight to the death on what we call the tree that we have in our house at Christmas and yet still mirror the world's attitudes and actions but what truly matters at Christmas time. And as I was mulling over what to preach for today... I mean, it's the Sunday before Christmas. It should be a Christmas message. And I was thinking about the meaning of Christmas and what it's about and how easily it is to forget that and to miss the point in all of our busyness and all the things that we have going on. And well, none of the traditional Christmas stories on their own really stuck. There were certain parts from ones that did. And as I thought about the different parts of the different stories, I thought about what we could do to ensure that Christmas was meaningful. That we didn't necessarily get caught up in reckless consumerism. That we certainly didn't get caught up in Christless spiritualism. I mean, because we, we would all have to admit, it is easy to get caught up into the same sort of trap that the people in the story did. I know for us, we're leaving this afternoon to go see Kelly's folks, and it'll be a busy week. All day driving, uh, early day tomorrow, all kinds of things going on. Uh, easiest thing in the world for us this week will be not to be in our Bibles, not to think about Jesus, but just to, to enjoy being together, eating lots of food and, and all the things that we get and get to give to one another. And while we say that we're seeking to honor the birth of our Savior and King, it is so easy to really just instead focus on ourselves. So what I want to do today is just remind us of a couple of familiar Christmas passages so that we can see two things to do to move beyond reckless consumerism and Christless spiritualism to making Christmas eternally meaningful. And, and I had three, three things to do, uh, but Kelly said it's Christmas, give the people a gift, make it a short message today, so we have two. Um, however, if we work hard. I do remember everything I was going to say in the third point, so there could be a Christmas bonus in it for everybody this morning. The first thing to do is to worship the God of Christmas. Let me read you a lengthy quote from a theologian named J.I. Packer about worship. And I've read this quote before, but I love it. and It's one that is so important. He said, to worship God is to recognize his worth or worthiness. It is to look Godward and to acknowledge in all appropriate ways the value of what we see. The Bible calls this activity glorifying God or giving glory to God and views it as the ultimate end and from one point of view, the whole duty of man. Scripture views the glorifying of God as a sixfold activity. 
praising God for all that he is and all his achievements, thanking him for all of his gifts and his goodness to us, asking him to meet our own and others' needs, offering him our gifts, our service, and ourselves, learning of him from his word, as it's read and preached, obeying his voice, telling others his worth, both by public confession and testimonies to what he has done for us. Thus, we might say the basic formula for worship is, Lord, you are wonderful. Thank you, Lord. Please, Lord, take this, Lord. Yes, Lord. Listen, everybody. This, then, is worship in its largest sense. Petition as well as praise. Preaching as well as prayer. Hearing as well as speaking. Actions as well as words. Obeying as well as offering. Loving people as well as loving God. However, the primary acts of worship are those that focus on God directly. And I like what Packer said about worship recognizing God's worthiness and it being the highest duty of man. I don't think there is much in life that is more important than our having a time where we worship God. We recognize His greatness and His worthiness. It should be an essential part of our lives every day of our lives. However, when we're setting aside a day to recognize God's work of coming to earth for our redemption, we should even be more intentional about worshiping God. And in my mind, one of the greatest songs of praise in Scripture is sang by Mary. So turn with me to Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. It's page 780 in the Pew Bibles. Of course, we're familiar with the story. God, the angel comes to Mary, tells her she is going to have a child. Mary says, how can that be as I'm a virgin? The Holy Spirit would come upon her, and the child born of her would be the Holy One of God. Mary says, okay, I'll do what you want me to do, Lord. If we had time, we'd go into all that that could have meant for her. Uh, but she surrenders to God's will for her life, despite what it may cost her personally. After finding out, she goes to see her sister Elizabeth, or her cousin Elizabeth, as she goes and comes into her, to, with Elizabeth, her, the baby and Elizabeth jumps, and then Mary begins to praise God. And here's what she says. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. He has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant, for behold, henceforth, all generations would call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and his holy name, and, and holy is his name, and his mercy on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm, and has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones, and exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he has spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And I think in this, this one prayer, this one praise that Mary gives, there are several things about God that, that make him worthy of our praise, uh, that, that make him worthy of our worship. One is that God is, is merciful. Right? Mary says in verse 46 that she magnifies the Lord. That her spirit rejoiced in God. And notice what she calls him. God, my Savior. Mary knows 
that God is her Savior, that she needs God's salvation and mercy just as much as anyone else. It says in verse 48, For he has regarded the, the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. She calls him in verse 50, she says, For his mercy on those who fear him and, uh, from generation to generation. And she is just extolling the, the great mercy of God. Mary, Mary knows she has not been chosen for this because she is perfect. Mary knows she has not been chosen for this because she is better than others. It is a gift of God. It is a mercy that God has shown to her by allowing her to be the mother of Jesus Christ. She is aware of the fact that none of us really deserve anything from the Lord. That everything He has given us and everything He has done for us, it is an act of His mercy. And the way to understand mercy is to understand that mercy is not giving us what we deserve. Right? Mercy is not giving us what we deserve. And it's easy for us to forget why what God gives us and all that God does for us, why is that mercy? And I think it's good at times to go back and remember who we were, what we were, before God came along and, and did something in our lives. And Ephesians, I think, does this better than any others. It says... And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Right? In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which now works, the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh. Right? Fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace you have been saved. And this is a, to me, this passage is a, it's a humbling passage. Right? Because Paul describes what we all were apart from Jesus Christ. What we all are apart from Jesus Christ. And he says that we are, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Right? We, have, we have all sinned and we have all violated God's law. And since we have that sin, it has, it has killed us. We are spiritually dead, separated from God. But even beyond that, right? we all conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. I mean, do you realize that each and every one of us in here we have all at various times done what we know God wanted us not to do. We have said, this is what I want and I don't care what God says. Right? It's like when a child, right? when, when Sarah was younger, um, mom has this lamp and it has these little dangly things down on it. And Sarah was playing with them and pushing them around. They're all glass and it's kind of this really frou-frou fancy lamp. And mom said, Sarah, don't touch the lamp. And Sarah said, this lamp? Right, just rebellious, right? But the thing is, that's how we all were towards God. God said, "Don't do that," and we said, "Oh, don't do this," and we jumped out and we did it. We wanted to do it. It was our desire. It was our sinful nature that wanted to do it. We knew God said not to do it, and yet we did it anyway. And we were because of that. We were by nature the children of wrath. You know what that means? That means we deserved God's punishment. We deserved the wrath of God. I mean, God judging us and God pouring out His punishment on us. It's not God being unjust. It's not God being cruel. It's not God being overly strict or harsh. If God were to judge each and every one of us, it would be what we deserved. I mean, just 
take a second and let that sink in. I mean, do you really believe that apart from Jesus Christ, you are a child of wrath? You are by your very nature deserving of the wrath and the judgment of God. We are. We all are. And God would have been right to have left us in that state. And there would have been nothing wrong with God allowing us to suffer for our sins. But God gave us what we did not deserve. He showed us mercy. He forgave us our sin because of Jesus Christ. Listen, the mercy that God has shown to each and every one of us in here. Man, that should be something that makes us worship Him. We should know my God is worthy of my worship because of the mercy He has shown me. That is what I deserve, but God is rich in mercy. And He loved me. And He saved me. And He gave me grace. And so I will declare His worth now and forevermore. But not only is God merciful, God is powerful. It says in verse 49, For He who is mighty has done great things for me. Holy is His name. Verse 51, He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He has put down the mighty from their thrones and He has exalted the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. Right? And what she's saying is that God has just done great and mighty things for her. Now, of course, for her, God has done great things in her as she's a virgin that's about to give, that's going to give birth to a child. Right? She says, how can that be? The angel reminds her, nothing is impossible with God. But as she recounts God's might, she remembers what God had done for Israel throughout the generations of their lives. Right? God, God had proven himself mighty on behalf of Israel. Everything about the nation and about the people it spoke of a God who was awesome. Of a God who could do all things. Right? They were slaves in Egypt. And yet they came out and became a people all of their own. But they didn't leave Egypt because Egypt just said, you know what, the best thing to do, we're just going to let our slaves go free. Right? They didn't go free because Moses was a great leader. They didn't go free because Moses was a great warrior and led a revolt. They went free because God did mighty things on their behalf. God showed Egypt that he was God and their gods were nothing. God delivered them and he showed them great and mighty things. And I like this passage. It says, Nevertheless, he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make his mighty power known. And he rebuked the Red Sea also and he dried it up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. And he saved them from a hand of him who hated them and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. God has just, all throughout the Bible, God demonstrates that He can do anything He wants to do, that nothing is impossible with Him. And the God who has done mighty things on behalf of Israel, He has done mighty things on our behalf. I mean, how many of us? I mean, if we were to take the time and list specific prayers that God has answered, things that God has done that no one else could have done, could say, yes, my God has shown Himself powerful on my behalf. More, probably all of us, on more than one occasion. Things that he has done. right? Things that, that if we tell others about, they doubt. Oh, come on now. 
But I could tell you a story about my mom. About when, after she had had cancer, breast cancer, and it came back again. And there was a lump, and they went in to do it. We're going to go in and check it out. And, and Dad was praying, and he was praying for it not to be cancer. But then he thought, you know, why just pray that? Let's just pray it'll be gone. And so, on a Friday, he began a fast. And he fasted and he prayed Friday and Saturday and Sunday. And when they went back on Monday and did the x-ray again to find out where it was so they could do the biopsy, it was gone. Right now, skeptics will say, well, you know, x-rays aren't perfect and there was a mistake the first time around. And so the second one showed the truth that there was really nothing there. And I guess, I mean, I guess that's possible. I think they have both x-rays so they could show you where one is there and one is not. But what I see from that. That my God is powerful and He can do all things. Right? That my God can work miracles today just as surely as He did then. Right? God is powerful. Right? What He has done in the Bible, He can do today. And again, chances are we all have things where we can see that our God has worked on our behalf to do something great and wonderful. And the power of our God, well that makes Him worthy of our praise. That shows that He is worthy of our devotion. He is worthy of our saying, Yes, Lord. Please, Lord. Take this, Lord. We should worship Him because He is powerful. But also, God is faithful. It says in verse 53 that He has filled the hungry with good things, the rich has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to His seed forever. What God was doing through, G- in Mar- through Mary to bring about Jesus, it wasn't just for us or Mary. It was a fulfillment of God's promises. It was a fulfillment of what God had always said He was going to do. I mean, you think about in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Genesis 3, God puts Adam and Eve in the garden. They have one rule, perfect life. And the only thing is, don't eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But of course, they eat it, they fall into sin, God calls them into account. He tells them there's consequences for their sin, and then he gets the serpent who tempted them, and he said, the seed of the woman is going to crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. That was the very first promise of the gospel. And from that day forward, all of the Old Testament began to tell us about who Jesus was, and what Jesus was going to do. What's happening through Mary... It is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise. God is going to do what He has said He was going to do. God is going to keep His word. He is faithful to do what He has said He would do. And I love this, Deuteronomy. Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps His covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. Thessalonians, Paul says, For He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. I mean, think about that. God is faithful. Do you know, you do not know one person who is 100% faithful 100% of the time. You don't. Now, you may know good people who try their best to be faithful. But you know that if I were to tell you tomorrow I would come help you do something at your house, there are any number of things that could happen between now and then that would actually keep me from doing it despite my best intentions. I could get the flu and be laid up sick. My car could stop working. 
that tornado could come through. Any number of things could happen. And despite the fact I wanted to help and I said I would, I can't. There are things that are beyond my control that could keep me from being faithful. There are things that are beyond my power that could stop me from doing it and make me break my word. God does not suffer that limitation as we do. Right? If God has promised He can do it, He can. There is nothing or no one in the world that can stop God from doing anything He determines He wants to do. God is always faithful to do the things that He has said He will do. He who promised is faithful and He will do it. God has never let you down. He has never let me down and He never will. And that, oh man, God. I mean, even just think about the concept of that. A God who is faithful to me. Now that's pretty awesome. Normally, we think about the faithful one as the inferior one, right? Right? We talk about what dogs are faithful to their owners. Right? We're greater than the dog. The dog is faithful to us. But in this case, the greater chooses to be faithful to us. He has all power and all knowledge and can do all things and has no needs that we can provide. And yet he chooses to commit himself to us to do certain things. And he will always do it. That's a great and awesome God. That is a God who is worthy of my praise and worthy of my devotion. That is a God we should give our lives too. And as we go through this last week of the Christmas season, let's remember these things about our God. And let's make a point to worship Him. Now, I, listen, don't get crazy. I'm not saying don't have fun. I'm not saying don't buy gifts. I'm not saying don't enjoy the time and don't do anything but sit around and read your Bible and sing carols. Right? I'm not saying any of that. But through it all, there's a time where we can set aside time to worship God. There are opportunities for us to spend time there and say, My God is worthy to acknowledge Him, to praise Him, and to express my love for Him. Because of all that He is and all that He does. To make Christmas meaningful. Worship the God of Christmas. And then secondly, embrace the purpose of Christmas. And this is important. We must always remember what Christmas is about. We find the the purpose of Christmas in Matthew's account. So turn to Matthew chapter 1 verse 18 page 733. Now Mary has been told she is going to give birth. And as she comes to the point where she is ready for that to happen, there's an issue, and that is she's betrothed to a man to be married. And a betrothal in the Jewish culture was similar to an engagement, but stronger. It was They were basically married, but they didn't live together. It was the only real difference. And so... They had not yet come together, but she was going to come up as pregnant. Well, now that would pose a problem because it meant one of two things. It would mean that Mary violated her covenant with Joseph to be faithful to him, 
or it would mean that Joseph and Mary violated their covenant to be pure until their actual marriage. And so Joseph, because he didn't violate his covenant, and because, I mean, let's be honest, God making her pregnant sounds pretty far-fetched. He decides to break off the engagement, but he wants to do it quietly because he doesn't want her to be shamed. He doesn't want her to suffer for a violation of the law. And it says in verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. Take to you Mary for your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bring forth a son. You will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Right there. And that is that's what Christmas is really all about. I mean, we, we know that Easter, right, we focus on the resurrection of Jesus. We know it's about the redemption of man. But Christmas is every bit as about the redemption of man as Easter is. Jesus came for the purpose to save us from our sins. Now, When we start talking about sin and save us from our sins, things we have to understand. For instance, the Bible says all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. So that means we've all broken God's commandments. We have all done what God has said we should not do. We, We are all guilty of sin. The Bible also says the wages of sin is death. Now that's a bad thought there. Because what that means is I'm guilty of violating God's law, whatever that might be, God's standard. And because of that, I deserve God's wrath, as we talked about from Ephesians. And the the wages of sin is death. It's not just physical death, but it's spiritual death. It's eternal death. It's what Revelation calls the second death. Where it talks about the smoke of our torments rising forever and ever as we're cast into the lake of fire. Now that's all bad. And, And because it's so bad, we're all tempted to say... But I don't, I don't feel like a sinner. Right? I mean, I'm not perfect. But I, I, don't, I don't think I deserve that. I mean, that's extreme for what I might have done. I don't think I'm as guilty as what you're saying. So we have to understand, what is sin? Right? Because if sin is culturally defined, well then, it, we might not be that guilty. We might not deserve it if sin is defined by our culture. Because... What our culture says is wrong today is, is, or what our culture says is okay today, 20 years ago our culture said was really bad. Right? What our culture says is really bad today, 20 years from now we're going to say it's fine. Right? So is there an absolute standard? Is there one standard that is, this is what sin is? Yes. Yes, there is. The Bible gives us that answer. In 1 John 3 and 4, everyone who commits sin also breaks the law, for sin is breaking the law. Very simple. What is sin? Sin is breaking God's commandments. Right? The law there, as it's defined very narrowly, would be like the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, that makes up God's absolute standard of right and wrong. In fact, if we were to take the time, we could see that those Ten Commandments, that every moral command in Scripture... Every command towards God in Scripture, every command towards one another in Scripture, they all flow out of those. 
Those ten commands make up the basis for everything else the Bible says we are supposed to do or not do. The thing about the Ten Commandments, though, is the Ten Commandments grade on a pass or fail scale. Right? It is either you passed with a hundred or you failed regardless, which is a pretty high standard. And what it means is to pass means I would have had to have kept all ten of the commandments perfectly. From the time I was born to the time that I died. Never slipped up. Now, I read an article once. And it was written by Penn Jillette, an atheist, who said he had kept all ten commandments. And it was kind of an interesting article, and he explained why he was a great Christian, even though he was an atheist, because he had never violated God's commandments. And as I read that, the one thing I realized is, he really didn't understand what the commandments were. He really did not understand what he was saying. I mean, because like Romans three, nineteen and 20, tells us the law was given, that every mouth would be stopped, and we would all be brought guilty before God. It says that the better we know the law... The more, the more, the greater our awareness of our guilt is of the law. And so let's look at things. Think about it, right? For instance, the law says, the Ten Commandments said, you shall not kill. Or, for me, you shall not commit, you shall not murder. You think, oh, okay. I've done that, right? I mean, right, if you've killed somebody, raise your hand. No, not really, don't raise your hand. We don't want to know. It's scarce. Um, but we think, oh, I've done that. I've never killed anybody. And you think, oh, that's easy. But then you get to like Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And he said, you have heard it was said by them of old, you shall not kill. But I say unto you, don't be angry without cause. Don't say, raka, to your brother. Don't say, thou fool. Because if you do that, you're in danger of hellfire. Jesus, he went beyond the actual command to the intent behind the command. The command was not just saying, you can be as angry as you want and do anything you want so long as you don't kill people. The command was, keep everything in check. And so Jesus explained the heart attitude behind it. So, let's say, be angry without cause. I mean, you think about it. There are times where it's, where it's reasonable to be angry. But for the most part, the reasons that we're angry aren't really biblically justified. Kelly was telling the girls about me, and I don't know why she took it upon herself to tell her things that I had done. But years ago, years and years ago, long before I was a preacher, barely sure I was saved at that point, we went to Sam's, and there were two lines, and one line just had one person in it, and there was no, nobody checking them out. It was not a real line. This person just got in line and expected to be checked out. Well, nobody was going to do that. They were working over here. So the person stepped in front of Kelly and stepped on her foot. And, and I said, because I'm, I'm a nice guy, I said, you know I hate stupid people. I did. I said that. I hate stupid people. Here it is Christmas time and there's, well, I'm in the wrong line. I'll just jump in front of everybody and do what I want. I'm the most important person in the world. And I said it about that loud. And she was about as far as from here to Kelly from me. Then a few weeks later, we went to Albertsons. And we were going through the quick checkout, ten items or less. And there was a guy in line, and he had like a cart just piled up. And I said, hey, Kelly, can you count to ten? I can. Let's count the items in our cart. And so I counted every item in our cart. And I said, nine, that's less than ten. We're okay. Hey. What about that guy? Let's count the items in his cart. 
And I counted to about 15. And I did it about this loud right here. And he was just throwing things on there, you know. And I was mad. But you know what? That's without cause. That was a sin. That wasn't okay. That was, that was sinful. Have you ever just woke up in a bad mood? Right? And you go through your day and you're just short and cranky with everyone. How are you? I'm fine. Why do you ask? Right? Guess what? You've sinned. You broke the commandment. You are guilty of violating that command. The essence of that command. The biggest one is in, I think, is in the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Penn Jillette made a big point to say he's never worshipped any god. He's been an atheist as long as he can remember. So he's never violated that commandment. If that's all it meant, don't worship Bell or Moloch, well, that would be easy. But it means more than that. It means that for every moment of my life, God had to be number one. For every moment of my life, God was the center and the object of my devotion, my priorities, my attitudes, and my actions. Now, what that means is, there can never have been one time in my life when I said, here's what God said to do, but I want to do this instead, and do that instead. There could not have ever been one time in my life where I said, God said to do this, but I don't want to do that. And so I did something else instead. I would have had to have done everything God wanted, the way He wanted it done, with the right attitude and the right actions, 100% of the time. Now, none of us can say that. At one point or another, we have all put ourselves above God. We have put our desires above God's desires. And therefore, we have had other gods. Us. The greatest God in America is not Moloch or Allah or Buddha. It is self. We worship and are devoted to self more than any other God in existence. And that is a sin. That is a violation of God's commandment. And that makes us guilty. And deserving of the wages of that sin which is death. But Jesus came. That he might take the punishment that we deserved. Jesus came. To live a sinless life instead of a sinful life. He came to die on the cross in our place. And as he was on the cross, all of God's wrath against all of our sin was poured out upon him. And that is so important. Jesus did not die as a martyr for the cause. Jesus didn't die because he made the wrong people angry. He died for your sins and mine. He died because I yelled at the guy in the Albertsons line. He died because you looked at internet pornography. He died because you lied and you cussed. He died because we have all exalted self over God. That is why he died for us. He paid the penalty our sins deserved. That is how he came to save us from our sins. And after taking all of God's wrath 
against all of our sin. He cried out, it is finished. He had fully paid it. And three days later, he arose, proving that he was the Son of God and that our sins could be forgiven. He was born to die. When we celebrate the baby on the 25th, recognize that baby was destined to go to the cross. And that is the only reason he came into the world. But just knowing why Jesus came isn't enough. See, each one of us, we have to personally embrace that. We have to say, yes, I have sinned. I am guilty. And what Jesus did on the cross, he did for me. That was in my place that I might be saved. We must, each one of us, on our own, we must decide that I'm going to trust in Jesus. We must decide we are going to call upon Jesus. We must decide that we are going to embrace the purpose of Christmas. That was my salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that is the number one way to make sure Christmas is meaningful. It's to be sure. I'm not just focused on the presents and the stuff, but on Jesus, that He has saved me. So let me ask you, can you be say with certainty? Do you know that you, as an individual, have embraced Jesus Christ as your Savior? So that is, that is your decision and no one can do that for you. I was raised in a good Christian home. We went to church all of my life. But as much as my parents loved Jesus and went to church, they couldn't save me. They couldn't make that decision for me. There, had to, there came a day where I had to make that decision for myself. And so it is with you. For you that are young people... Your parents being Christians isn't enough. Your grandparents being Christians isn't enough. You must make the decision to trust in Jesus. For us as adults that have been raised in church, being in church isn't enough. Being baptized isn't enough. Being a member of a church isn't enough. You must make the decision to personally embrace Jesus as your Savior. No one can make it for you. It is intentionally done. It is when you say, I've sinned. Jesus died for my sin. Jesus saved me from my sin. And if you haven't done that, oh, that is the greatest need you have today. Is to call upon Jesus and embrace Him as your Savior. And that will make Christmas far more meaningful than anything else you could ever do. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.